that's what the exploration with tiny homes is about. Finding ways for people to live more within their means, but without removing those those things that we love about life, those things that we love about our home. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 123 with Zach Giffen. You may know him as the host of Tiny House Nation, but Zach Giffen has a lot going on in the tiny house world. Though he's as close as we may come to a tiny house celebrity, Zach is a thoughtful advocate for tiny house living, those in need, and housing policy, and it shows in all of his pursuits. In this conversation, we'll find out what draws Zach Giffen to the tiny house movement and what keeps him here. Plus, what's it like working on a tiny house reality show? Stick around. This week, I'd like to start off by giving a listener shout out to Jennifer. Jennifer left a review on Apple Podcasts that says, Big picture of tiny life. This podcast is a complete info package of tiny living, building, and an introspective into the lives of those that choose this life. It keeps my fire for tiny homes burning. Reviews are so helpful to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. It helps the show climb in the rankings on Apple Podcasts and also helps new people find the show. So if you want to help me out and leave a review for the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, please do so wherever you listen. You can go to ratethispodcast.com slash THLP to get some instructions and links out to your favorite podcast apps. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com slash THLP to rate the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Thanks, and I appreciate it. All right, I am here with Zach Giffen. Zach is a carpenter, professional skier, and tiny home builder who specializes in creative solutions to make small spaces more livable. He is the vice president of the Tiny Home Industry Association and owner of the Zach Rabbit Tool Company and co-host of Tiny House Nation on A&E and Netflix. In 2016, Zach started working as a board member and director of the nonprofit Operation Tiny Home teaching construction skills, and helping to develop tiny home villages for homeless veterans around the country. Zach Giffen, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you. Um, I was trying to think of where to start because there's like, your your bio just provides this perfect outline for all these things that I want to touch on in this conversation. So was was the OR, the Outdoor Research Tiny House, was that your first kind of experience building a tiny house? I mean, that, that was the first one that you would look at and identify it as a tiny house. You know, but I had been building homes really since high school. And I had been a skier a long time. So I really got into this idea of, okay, the advantages of having, you know, a little RV or, you know, a van that's outrigged. And camping as a skier is a little different than just camping as a, as a rock climber or whatever, because this is in the deep winter, right? And you're getting really wet and it's really cold. So kind of the comforts that a tiny home offer are really appealing to somebody that's trying to like be a little mobile in the wintertime. So, you know, 
my 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 fascination with tiny houses began the instant I saw one because it was really it was putting together all of these different pieces of my life and desires that I had and kind of packaging it in something that was really dignified and comfortable. Um, but before that, I had, you know, I had done an RV when I moved to Washington and have a place to live. So I bought an RV and I kind of had done up the interior with wood. And then later on, I, I bought a van and I did the same thing. I put a wood stove. So, you know, I had very much been living kind of true to the home mentality and lifestyle long before I ever even saw a tiny house. Do you remember what the first tiny house on wheels that you saw that kind of fit that kind of template? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was actually out on Lummy Island and one of my dad's old friends, this guy Hans, who's a kind of a hip guy. He's, he's into all the new coolest stuff. Um, turns of energy efficiency, you know, he, he kind of like knew about what I was doing and he ended up being like, Zach, have you ever thought about building a tiny house? And I never even heard of a tiny house. And he, and he brought up online and he sent me to Jay Schaefer's page, the Tumbleweed Tiny Home Company. I think this was in, yeah, this would, would have been 2011. And that was the first time that I ever like laid eyes on a picture of what we now think of as a tiny house on wheels, right? But back then, to me, it was like, that's a tiny house. Like to me, when I first saw tiny homes on wheels, that really was the description of a tiny home that I used in my mind. Because if it wasn't on wheels to me, it was just kind of like, well, that's just a cap. You know, we have, there's already words for this because it's on wheels and it's a custom cabin and it's so different than what everything else that we've seen as it like deserved its own title. Um, however, my understanding has been elevated since then. I've grown in my awareness tiny houses and obviously um you know it's it's turned into a massive piece of my life yeah so how how long was it between you know your dad's friend saying hey have you considered building a tiny house to to you building your your tiny house on wheels so i saw a tiny house for the first time in the spring of 2011 and i had built mine by uh beginning of november Actually, no, it was December. It, it, I was building mostly through November, but I, it took me kind of a long time to kind of figure out some kind of angle on how I was going to be able to afford to build one <laughs> and get some support. And I was a skier, so I was leaning on my ski sponsors and outdoor research was really the, that was kind of like the big ticket. They were the ones that believed in me. And so it took me a while to figure out how to get the resources, like most people, uh, but then I was just so passionate about the whole thing and was having such a fun time. I was putting like, you know, seven, seven days a week going at it, like 15 hours a day. And I built it in seven. Days. Yeah. So I started like the, the second week in October and I had it done by the end of November. Yeah. And this was 2011, you said? Yeah. Yeah. I, that was like right before I was gonna start building mine i started in june of 2012 and i remember i remember seeing it and i can't remember when i saw it but as a skier and and vermonter i just remember like being like that is such a great idea just to sleep <laughs> in the parking lot and just be able to yeah. hit it first thing yeah people don't quite realize but it is it's such a big piece of the ski culture 
you know, that being able to have us have a vehicle you can sleep in. It really is such a big part. And that, that's why for a lot of people are like weird came from skiing, but it's not actually that much of a stretch. Um, cause the appreciation for what a tiny home can offer you is already ingrained in that culture. Yeah. There's like the, the ski bum culture, like the kind of like, you know, live as simply as possible and as cheaply as possible in order to just ski as much as possible. Yeah. And it, it just re- seems to extend. Well, and now it's, it's something that has really reached the mainstream, um, in terms of people that are not skiers or not like living them, their lives for the outdoors, they're still caught up. It, it's more of a desire of people out there now to not live yourself just in pursuit of material possession, you know, and whether that's a skier or, you know, anything else, even if that's just creating more time to spend with your kids, it's a mentality that's really spread. And I think it's one of the, the most powerful and positive things that have come from, you know, the, the efforts behind the tiny home. Movement. Yeah. The, that tiny home lifestyle for, for lack of a better word is just kind of what it's all about for a lot of us. Yeah. And as an advocate, you know, what I try to explain is that I'm just as passionate about people just making more conscious life choices as I am about people living in specific tiny. Right. Yeah, it's like tiny homes is a way to get that conversation going, but the real goal should not just be small homes and the ability for small homes, but more of just a a shift, a, a cultural shift to kind of value our resources um, and really honor those resources by utilizing them in the most effective way we can. Absolutely, and it 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 dovetails really nicely with the outdoor you know, pursuit of, of outdoor recreation, just because a lot of people, you know, people are appreciating the outdoors and realizing how, how precious it is that we need to conserve it. And so just like the life choices of, of being gentler on the earth kind of really works well with that. Oh, absolutely. And, and back into the ski culture, right? The, any of the outdoor sports cultures, whether that's climbing or skiing or um, even biking, there's a deep element of environmentalism that's linked into that space. Um, and so there's a desire to kind of re-examine how people participate in those sports and to see if we can still pursue the sports that we love and those activities that make life worth living without unnecessarily burning more and more carbon fossil fuels than we than we need to, right? And so I'm definitely part of a push within skiing to just say, hey, let's not let's not shy away from the fact that there's an inherent hypocrisy, you know, to being a skier and being an environmentalist. Let's not shy away from that. Let's lean into that. Let's explore that and really, you know, as human beings that are great at coming up with solutions, let's let those conversations lead us to developing different tools that we can use. Could you say that's could you say more about that? Like what what do you mean by the the inherent hypocrisy in it? Oh, well, you know, we we have a thing in our planet where we are not going to survive as humans right now, the way society is laid out, unless we're burning fossil fuels. We need those fossil fuels to grow our food. We need them for, you know, medical situations. There's a whole lot of, you know, these essential things in society we just learned about that through COVID-19 like the 
the essential businesses and the unessential businesses. And as a, as a society and a, and, um, a population, when we come to the realization that we're actually destroying the things that give us happiness and life on this planet by burning the carbon, what we're realizing is a need to prioritize how we utilize that. And I can imagine a world and probably not far off distant world where the use of carbon to burn fossil fuels strictly for recreation and your own enjoyment is not no, is no longer going to be socially acceptable because it, the awareness is going to be, hey, we have to burn fossil fuels, but we need to focus that on growing food, transporting food, keeping things that keep people's lives um, going, right? And so in that space, wow. yeah, this is we're, we're we're contributing to the devastation of the planet that we love simply by pursuing the sports that make worth life worth living. And we do need to re-examine how we engage in that and try to find ways where we can, where we don't have to eliminate the things that we love about life, but we're able to do it and prioritize how we utilize our resources in a way that doesn't, that doesn't create just so much sacrifice. And in, that's what the exploration with tiny homes is about, finding ways for people to live more within their means more within their beliefs on, on their impact on this planet, but without removing those, those things that we love about life, those things that we love about our home. Yeah, that's a, I mean, beautiful way to put it. So thank, thank you for saying that. Yes. Um, well, thanks. So, go ahead. Well, I, I'll, just, I'll just add, it's like, it's a little bit of a long-winded way to get to a point where I feel that this process of looking at space and how we can live in space and looking at small spaces and, and making it so that we can live in them without that sacrifice really is this kind of scientific green technology, if you will. You know, it's a it's an effort that's going to allow more and more people throughout our planet to not need a bigger space, to look at their space and reflect and say, hey, how can I make it work better for me? And not just keep demanding more and more. And that is ultimately something that is going to impact the, the overall needs of resources from humanity. And it's a great trend to have been a part of. Yeah, and I, I, I would say that you've been, you know, a fa- uh, not the face, but a face of it. And that, you know, when when you and I were building our tiny houses, if you said to someone, I'm building a tiny house, you usually were met with with puzzlement, kind of like there's no that doesn't mean anything. But now it's pretty mainstream. Like most people know when you say tiny house, they're like, oh, I've seen that show. Like I love my wife and I love watching that show or my, you know, like, so it really, it's become mainstream. And I think by doing that, it's become more acceptable. Yeah. And as you know, I mean, the, the real thing that I believe that has kept it from becoming much more mainstream than it already is are the really the very uh, strict zoning policies that limit people's ability to utilize tunnels for long-term living. Um, that's, as you know, beginning to change. But I think that that's been the piece where you have so many people queuing in on this, on this movement thinking about it being like, wow, 
for whatever reason, that could be perfect for me. And then they go along the pathway and they realize, oh, it's not actually legal where I want to live. And it kind of bursts people's fantasy. Um, and the problem with that is that it leaves them thinking, oh, it was this tiny home movement that le led me down this path that wasn't realistic and criticizing the, you know, the, the tool, which is tiny home, instead of criticizing those laws that are really standing in the way of them being able to utilize that dream. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a big piece of it. But I also want to say that I think any advocate within this movement will agree that it's more than just about tiny homes. There is an environmental element about it. There's an economics and just a, how, how we lay out our cities in terms of the support structures we, we create. And then there's social justice. There's racial justice issues with this. Um, but it's really, it's my work is not focused on just tiny homes. It's about removing the barriers to all types of living so that our society can have a better diversity, a better uh, spread of incomes throughout the, our cities. And the value, the real great value that that has um, to the lives of many and how it can really help us uh, tackle these huge problems, you know. Absolutely. E equality, inequality, racism. Um, how, we do, how we lay out our cities does have a really big impact on it. Yeah, certainly. I mean... Well, sometimes the the most onerous laws that are preventing tiny houses are are zoning laws, not even not even building codes, just to basically keep wealthier areas as single family homes, you know, less dense, more wealthy, and you know those laws, luckily, are starting to change, but they've the they've been so ingrained for so long that it they have really contributed housing has really contributed to so much of the inequality that that we see now yeah um there's other areas that may need to be looked at but what i think is is housing discrimination is one of the very few obviously um institutionally racist policies that we yeah. still have on the books we used to have a huge range of institutionally racist policies that really reinforced and mandated racism. We started to do away with those in the civil rights era. And what I really believe is this, this conversation about you know, housing discrimination is really just a part of the original civil rights conversation that just didn't quite get addressed far enough, right? Yeah. And... And before you were kind of bringing up the the affordability piece or, or the the zoning being one thing standing in the way, but then another thing is that you know there's this irony that that tiny houses are affordable for ownership, and yet there's there's no current financing structure in place, and so even though they're affordable, they're still unaffordable because you know most people yeah. can't pay cash for a you know. A fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar house. Yeah. So the the basically the obstacles to tiny houses they really are people's mentality about small things, right? We have successfully, as a movement, shows like mine, 
uh, influencers have really gone and done a huge amount to dissolve people's idea that just bigger is always better. And now we have, I think it was 60% of our country said in study and surveys that they would live in 600 square foot space, right? And that is as big of, as, of a success to the tiny home movement as anything else. And at, also at the same time, for the first time really ever, the overall average American home size is now getting smaller, right? So we've helped our country get to that point where we're no longer just moving into further and further excess. People not that are never going to live in a tiny house are still reflecting on what it is that they need to be happy. And the, the, um, the pendulum swing of society is moving back towards sanity, right? Yeah. So there's, there's that. And I think we've basically successfully overcome the hurdle of public opinion. Now we are right in the midst of overcoming the hurdle of the legalities and being able to live in this type of structure legally, permanently. And we have all these amazing examples around the country of places that are kind of setting precedents. And it really feels like we're at a place where a lot of those barriers in a lot of places are about to come down. And then the third big challenge that we have as an industry is what you identified, which is financing. And the financing, just like you said, the way that it's let out. So just so to roughly go through it, in order to build or buy a tiny home right now, basically need to take out a loan that's a personal loan, as opposed to a loan that's looked at as a home mortgage. And the big difference is that there's vastly different interest rates on a personal loan versus a mortgage. And there's drastically different um, down payment requirements and credit requirements. So what it really means is that, like, basically, if you could take an average 30-year mortgage the way that we give homeowners, right, at the interest rate that we've been dealing with for the last, you know, year or two, what that would look like is, say, say the average type cost of a tiny home would be like $85,000, right? You can get a good livable tiny home for a single person, no problem, $85,000. And if you looked at financing that and we could apply like an actual mortgage, you'd be talking about whatever the down payment is. I mean, keep in mind in the United States, it was that average, it was 5% down payment, right? They started taking loans with no down payment there for a little while. But if we could get a even a 20% loan, right? 20% down payment, you're throwing in like 18,000 bucks or something. Uh, that's not insignificant. But after that, if you're able to finance on a 30-year mortgage, you're going to be paying less than $500 a month, like 400 something on that. And all of a sudden, if we could open that opportunity up to millions of people around our country, if that was an option, if they said, hey, I could save up, you know, $12,000, $15,000 and then get in on a situation where I'm paying $500 a month to own something, that is really, that's like, uh, that should be national news, that there's even an option there. And the only thing stopping it is that we really need to look at kind of those, what I believe is inherently discriminatory zoning policies. We need to rearrange them. Then we need to force the financial sector to take this seriously. And the, the problem is, is that the financial sector cannot give that type of loan 
to a product like a tiny house until there's widespread legality, right? Because as long as there's a lot of our country where that's not a legal housing option, the banks are not just going to be able to treat it as like it's good to go and kind of quantify the risk. Right. It can't fit into an, an actuary, into a table of risk. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it goes into so much. The way we set up our cities, if we want to tackle transportation, if we want to tackle, you know, our environmental impact, um, it is really important that we start addressing it, just how we live in. I guess the, the one thing that I tend, the place that I tend to go to with talking about tiny homes that I don't see a lot of other people go to is really talking about the service that breaking up the divisions within our society do, right? And the way that we know, basically the, the science right now that points to the value of having economic diversity throughout our our communities is just as rock solid as the science for global warming, right? It's very, very stark. When we create spaces in our communities and spaces in society that are places where the haves and live in one place and have not live in another, we're creating these big zones that are devoid of opportunity. The ability of somebody to grow up in that space and better their reality through hard work, you know, and dedication is almost non-existent in these geographic spaces. We can throw a huge amount of funding towards um, schooling in those areas. I think it's important. We can we can try to balance the scale in other way for these children. But what we're seeing from the science, and there's a project called the Opportunity Atlas that's amazing that demonstrates this. If anybody's interested, opportunityatlas.org. And it basically really just goes in community by community and shows where um, uh, economic mobility is thriving and where economic mobility is cut short, right? And there's no other single thing, single factor that we've found that has as great of an influence on somebody's future as the neighborhood that they grow up in and that specific space. So it's what is really just showing us is the very obvious damage that we do to people in in society when we allow for these pockets of poverty to develop that hand down that poverty over generation that leave people and as we've been seeing it's so obvious disproportionately minorities leaving them growing up in a space where they're very um they, they have very little hope and it's justifiable because the statistics back them up they have very little hope of being able to live a dignified life working a legal job, doing the things that society says they should be doing. And until we stop having slums that are full of black people, we're going to have disproportionate uh, police presence in the black communities. You know, I've we're, we're talking on on Tuesday, you know, June 2nd. And so, you know, this won't come out for a few weeks, but I've also myself been thinking a lot about this and just really reflecting on that racism hurts hurts us all you know you know and we are we're both white men so we are privileged and have not faced any of this personally but that you know when you talk about changing the zoning laws and and creating more 
inclusive laws that can allow everyone to live better lives this this hurts this hurts everyone and so it's um it's important it's harder to articulate right right the damage that is done with segregation the damage that is done to the affluent communities i'm not going to say white that's what it happens to be but i believe that Mm -hmm. this is a this is an economic this is a result of economic separation and in our country that means race but the damage that's done to the affluent areas is a spiritual damage. You know, it is withholding the ability of a child to learn from an early age how to relate to all human beings because you've removed that opportunity from them to just learn how to relate and be casual and to see that person for who they are and how funny they are and all of these human values or the kids form their own kind of social identity of like, hey, I'm from the rich family. I don't associate with them or, you know, divisions from from race. I think that is why it is just such a powerful thing um, to try to include diversity. And I think what we know is we, we don't have to mandate racial diversity. We can just really mandate economic equality and inclusion and it's going to over time create much more diverse communities um, you're going to have a lot more successful black people that's going to create a trigger of optimism and hope within the communities when you have children growing up looking at other successful black men right that ability is going to be massive in the the lives of those children just believing that they also can get there and when they there's no examples for kids to look at and say hey that's who they are look how amazing they are i want to be just like that of people in their community following the laws living the way that you're supposed to and then succeeding it's very damaging um yeah so steering back a little bit to to tiny houses um you know with with zoning laws that are beginning to change, um, how do you see the trends of tiny house designs um, changing to fit into these new urban contexts to to kind of fit in better in in these urban neighborhoods? Well, that is a very good question. Um, I would say it depends on the way that cities are changing their laws to allow tiny houses. Um, Some places have allowed tiny homes, but not tiny homes on wheels. Some places are allowing tiny homes on wheels in backyards of single family homes. Some places are allowing tiny or claiming they're allowing tiny homes on wheels, but they're just creating more trailer parks. And so I think that how they can have effect really, it, it really depends on how the city is opening up to it. But I think the most important policy to talk about and to really kind of break down the value that it can have to society is the is the laws that are being tried out in Los Angeles and San Jose that originated in Fresno. And it's the laws that are allowing homeowners, owner, owner-occupied housing, to utilize a tiny home in their backyard as an accessory dwelling unit. And I mean, we can talk about all the other values of communities and all of those things, but 
if we really want to shake up the dynamic, the affordable housing dynamic in this country, that is one of the most effective ways that we can do it in a in a capacity that can be implemented fast enough for it to matter, if that makes sense. Sure. What would you say to the criticism that, you know, this is, it's great, but it just allows people who are already privileged to put a second dwelling unit and start, air, you know, start earning money from Airbnb? Well, that's a very good point. But I think what you have to do is you have to come from the place of already realizing that the entire city or entire state of California allows ADUs, right? So the conversation is not about whether or not to allow somebody to build a Airbnb in their backyard. That's already gone. That's already gone through. They already can, right? So this law or this rule is about whether or not that ADU movable and if it needs to be fixed to a permanent foundation. And I think the most important thing to understand about what that does change the dynamic is that it, it enables the upfront cost of that tiny home or that ADU be divided, right? So your, your mom could be in a house, right? And she can barely float the mortgage, which is millions of older people in this country right now. And there's no way that that person or your mom or whoever it is could afford Another hundred thousand dollars, another hundred fifty to create a rental apartment in their backyard, and that means that people don't do it, and it means that the people that could need the the financial assistance the most are cut off from access of it, and it also means that the people that actually have that financial incentive to share their property can't participate, and the people who do build them they don't have that financial pressure on them. So the ADUs that normally get constructed, very, very, very few of them end up on the rental market. And so simply allowing them to be on wheels means that, hey, I, my wife and I could buy a tiny home. We could partner with your mom. I could park my tiny home in the back of your mom's house. All of a sudden, your mom's receiving um, you know, a monthly income from that space. I have a space to live. I get to enjoy the, the dignity that has that comes with ownership. And it also provides this really interesting dynamic that we need in our country, which is it provides support system. It provides places for caretakers, right? It means that I could potentially be a caretaker, own my own home, and somebody that doesn't want to go to a nursing home that's having a hard time on their own can just let me sleep in the backyard. They can pay me a little bit. It's still going to be far lower cost than than jumping into an assisted living. And so it, it creates this really powerful opportunity for kind of a relationships between generations to really create, um, solves problems for both. And I mean, I'd love, I don't, I hate talking too much about tiny homes because I tend to just go on and on and on. There is so many connections to it because when you start talking about creating um, solutions for generations, right, you're, you're facilitating not only the older Americans, but the younger generations. You have to take into context what's going on in our overall housing market and what's been going on with the demographics of this country. And what I'll just say, I'm going to not go further too much, but Basically, right now, two-fifths of the houses in our country are owned by the baby boomers. 
another one fifth is owned by people older than the baby boomers. So three fifths of the homes, 60% of the homes in our country are owned by people 55 and older, right? When you look at the attrition rates that have been very um, consistent throughout history, right? People have faced attrition at a certain rate when they're in their 60s, 70s. By the time they're in their 80s, it's a totally different level. If you take the rates of attrition, which means people getting kicked out of their homes, not on their own accord, and you apply it to this new bubble of our population that is older homeowners, what they're looking at is they're looking at millions of homes that are simply going to go onto the market in the next decade that are in addition to the overall normal flow of buying and selling. And if you just look at the amount of wealth that those homes represent, what they're showing is there's a mathematical impossibility for younger generations to absorb that wealth transfer. It, does that make sense? So basically, the cost of those houses are like we're the next generation isn't going to be able to afford to move into those houses is what you're saying. The amount of wealth that is represented by those houses, I think. Right now, it's like $13.4 trillion is owned in mm-hmm. housing assets from baby boomers. Not all of that's going on the market right away. Sure. But as people hold on to homes later and later in life, things start happening, and it's not up to them. They, you know, people start dying. You start having like issues, and that is what's called attrition. It's not up to them. But those attrition rates can be up to us, right? Because we can enact policies help older homeowners avoid attrition by allowing them to utilize their property better to generate an income so that less of them need to foreclose on their home to pay for all the rest of the things in the end of life. And that is a real important piece because if we do not affect that attrition rate, we have studies like, and I'll list it out for your listeners, uh, there was a study called The Coming Exodus of Older Homeowners that was put out in is 2018, but it's still very applied, applies very well right now. And it was put out by Fannie Mae, you know, the bank, the lender, Fannie Mae. Yeah. It was a report that was done by Fannie Mae and the, um, and a professor at USC. So it's not a conspiracy thing. This is coming from the financers saying, guys, we got this thing going on. We got this growing amount of wealth in this concentrated amount of Americans that's getting older. Still there? Zach? Hello? Seems like I lost you for a sec. Hmm. All right, I just texted Zach. Um, hopefully he's going to rejoin, and then um, we will continue this, this great conversation. Oh man, Ethan, I tell you what, uh, you just had a, an authentic Zach Giffen experience. What happened? That's as real as it gets. Well, my phone ran out of batteries. Oh. <laughs> and I am, uh, I have been very blessed in my life. I've had skill in a lot of different areas. There is some things I'm horrible at. Charging my phone is totally one of them. And I was so bad at it that it was even plugged in and it wasn't even charging and I didn't realize. You got to plug the other end in too. 
<laughs> oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, oh man. Yeah, John will be so impressed when I tell him I know the trick now. <laughs> well, the, it's no problem. I'm glad you made it back back in. It was actually like, it seemed like you had finished your point and it was perfect. And then I was like, uh, oh, he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Uh, well, at least he, he, I didn't get too cut off right away. Um, you know, there. I guess where I was going with that kind of talking about is you were you were kind of talking about where the what do you do with people that are kind of arguing against this kind of stuff? And I think one of the important things to say is not just kind of talk about your own ideas and talk about um, the ways that we can safeguard against things going wrong as we change rules because there are a lot of them. But I think it's also important to point out what it's going to mean if we don't, you know, mm. what does, what does it look like if we allow things to keep going down this, down this path? And I think what this report was pointing out in terms of the attrition rates is that if you have a huge amount of homes going on the market, and then you have a population that's expected to be able to buy these homes and can't, the result is that you lose a lot of housing value. And in our country right now, older homeowners that are holding onto these homes are also very much without retirement savings in, in the same proportion as other generations. So we're counting on that equity that we have in our homes for a retirement plan. Right. And so it's going to be a very painful process for a huge amount of Americans if we have another kind of housing downturn. Um, so that's that's one important reason why we need to kind of let's think about acting and changing because we we're kind of heading towards a brick wall there. Um, and if you're an economist, you're you're looking at it thinking, wow, this is something that we should we should start trying to account for. Tiny houses. I think one of the reasons people don't have those conversations is don't people don't have a lot of good ideas about things that are concrete, actionable ways that we can affect these things. And what I'm here to say is that that leads me to be as passionate as I am is that I really feel like, okay, we don't have the solutions for everything, but in space where you're talking about, you know, equality, the economy, the environment, there's so many people waving the flag of saying, hey, things need to change. And so few people actually providing real options for concrete ways that we can move forward in a better way. And I think that that's what we have in the tiny home world. We're saying, yeah, there's a lot of things that need to change. Here's just a tool that we can use that really could have a lot of effect. And here's why. Yeah. And it's. It's such a appealing and just like it's. It's a bottom up change, which is, I think, what we need more of. It's not like it doesn't require the government to subsidize a developer to build a multi-million dollar affordable housing building and demolish a bunch of single family homes to do it. You know, it, it's like it can happen one by one and use what we already have. It's accessible to real people. Yeah. It's accessible. And, and I think there's a dynamic that happens when you, the only tool that you have to address affordable housing is these large apartment complexes. Well, those that type of construction is so expensive. It's this huge multi-million dollar project. So before, it means that normal people can't participate in that kind of solution. It requires developers, and it really requires the financing sector to back it. 
And as soon as you require, as you get the developers in, you get the financing sector in, it's like everybody's taking their 20%. And before you know it, even these super modest little spaces, because they had to get so taxed in order to get the financing going and everything else, end up being $500,000 a unit. And that's the scenario that we're in with our country is that we are so all about affordable housing, but when we try to implement it, it becomes so expensive so fast that, of course, we can't solve the problem. Yeah. And what's beautiful is that tiny homes and just really changing our, our zoning policies to enable them is a solution that, just like you pointed out, it's the cost of it is, makes it attainable for people. Um, and because it's that division of ownership, it means that people can kind of combine together to absorb absorb that the preventative costs. So it's a, it's a, it's a solution that's an, it's it's um, a, attainable to the people who need it most. Yeah, I was I was actually curious. I know you mentioned a few like Los Angeles and Fresno. Um, is there any city or town or municipality that that you kind of point to right now as a model that that you think is kind of doing it doing it best uh yeah yeah it's the model that really was originated in fresno Uh and it's it's the model that has been adopted by the city of los angeles has been adopted by the city of san jose and santa clara county and is currently Mm -hmm. being debated in san diego uh there's conversations in denver this idea is spreading for sure every city kind of takes it and kind of makes their own little twist to it to kind of fit it to their own needs. But the common denominator of that policy is essentially allowing tiny homes on wheels to be utilized as accessory dwelling units. As ADUs. Yeah. How do you feel about the, um, you know, some cities have basically said that, and I believe Los Angeles is one of them, that the tiny house has to be certified kind of as an RV, mm-hmm. um, which in in some ways makes it a lot harder for a DIY builder to to do this themselves and does kind of push people to have to get it professionally built. Now, I know that as this movement expands, a much greater percentage of people are going to be having them built professionally rather than, mm-hmm. you know, doing it themselves. But I'm curious if you if you can comment on that at all. Yeah. Um, well, I think that like as somebody who's an advocate for the, the longevity of this movement, if we move through and enact policies that kind of don't have any sort of safeguard, it's really it's just a, a matter of time before our whole kind of ideas get shut down. So I don't really see there being a pathway for tiny homes to really become the tool that they need to be or they could be to society without having some uniform agreements about what makes a tiny home right and so right now the the cities are kind of doing the best they can because there's nothing they're having to invent their own definition and it would be just so beautiful if the irc which is the non-governmental body that really should be coming up with this wasn't just passing the buck off to lni and off to the states to kind of in the different towns to come up with their own ideas and um, that's the real solution we don't know if that's ever going to happen, and we're not going to wait around for it too. But we do need to develop some kind of universal building codes that really 
say, hey, this is a tiny house, this isn't. And and that goes down to um, the need for cities to be able to quantify it and say, okay, yes, we say yes to this. And then that enables the, the banks to actually say, okay, well, if it's done like that, we know it's worth X and we can quantify the value. Now, that all being said, I'm a total gorilla carpenter. Like I love tiny homes more than like anybody in terms of the ability to just like free for all, right? And you get a client that wants you to do something and you don't have to ask permission. You just go ahead and do it. I love that part about it. It's the artistic part. And I never want to see, you know, unduly the creativity creativity curtailed within this space. So basically, as long as the rules allow for a pathway for individuals, DIY guys like myself, to be able to go through a process that enables you to build your own home and get it certified, I'm okay with it, you know, and I'm okay with kind of imperfect rules that we can kind of work on in the future a little bit um, along those lines just to get the ball rolling. Uh, But yeah, it's got to have some kind of safeguards and we can't. We can't develop another solution and try to use poor people and affordable housing and try to turn it into another solution for corporations to make more money. Like, that's one of the main things that we need to be saying here. It's like, God, when we, I know we're capitalist country, and I think that, you know, I'm a capitalist, but there are certain things that we don't necessarily need to have these large demanded profit margins built in. Right. I don't need 20 percent to go and help somebody who needs a home like my spirit is elevated, knowing that the people in my world and my community have places to go. You know, the. Yeah, there's such a there's such a paradox there in a way that like. In some ways, we need companies to be creative and inventive and figure out ways to make tiny homes for for cheaper. Mm-hmm. But then again, we don't want, you know, the the profit margins on a on a tiny home are already less than a larger home just because of the scale of the building. And it's like you don't want corporations building, you know, essentially RVs and calling them tiny homes that really aren't well designed for for full time living. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and people have different opinions about that but the reality is that we do need to come we need to get away from the idea that if it's on wheels it's not safe to live in because that's just totally false that's completely false yeah um we need to get away from the idea that if it's on wheels it's built to less quality because that's completely false there are so many advantages when it comes to modular construction for this exact process of what we're talking about just for the just for the um implementation aspects of it right to build an adu in every backyard around the country i mean that's like me and my buddies showing up to your street for a couple months and making a crazy amount of noise trucks coming in and out you know it construction is a very intrusive process to a community simply allowing something to be built modularly means that you can do it your mom could put me in her backyard without pissing off the neighbors a lot more easily right right it also means that we can build these spaces to higher quality with lower construction waste, which is another piece of this whole kind of thing that we don't talk about when we say, oh, the carbon, um, 
you know, the carbon footprint of your house and the size of your house, right? People strictly just like usually just think about like heating and cooling. And that's a big element, but it's also about the the carbon footprint of the materials that go into your space. And the amount of waste that's generated through construction is obscene. So in, in terms of like that implementation, there's just a lot of advantages to the mobility. And in terms of what it does to accessibility, it's a game changer. But it's not going to be a game changer unless we have legal pathways to do it. And we have a financial system that, that actually recognizes it, that this is, this is here to stay. Yeah. And so when you, when you framed this up, you kind of, you kind of spoke about that the, the legal framework probably is going to need to change first before the financial structures are going to even really start to consider it. Absolutely. Because what you're talking about is banks are just weighing the risk, right? So if somebody defaults on that loan and they end up with this product or whatever it is, how do they know that it's actually worth what the person that bought it thought it was, right? It's that right. that issue of resale value. And I don't blame banks when they look at the environment right now and they say, okay, yeah, so you're basically, okay, okay, oh, it's not legal to live anywhere other than, uh, you know, a trailer park. Well, what makes this different than a trailer? Why am I going to evaluate this in any capacity any different? Oh, because you, it's more expensive. Okay, sure. But that doesn't enable people to really start considering this as a house, which is what will enable the, the, the financiers to, uh, to actually, um, you know, make a big difference. And I'm, I'm currently working. I have a, a program with Operation Tiny Home, and it's, you know, it's actually one of the programs I'm the least involved with, but we're very proud of it. It's a down payment assistance program. And it's not just for veterans, it's for anybody who qualifies as a community hero, which is any frontline worker these days. And what it's really designed to do is it's designed to help people get over that hurdle of the down payment. So we match whatever money that they have. But it's also designed to help builders out there in the industry who have all these people coming to them saying, I want a tiny house, I'm ready to go. And then they say, all right, well, Guess what? Financing requires, you know, a 700 credit score and they're going to, you know, it's the financing reality mean that it just turns a huge amount of people off. So it's, it's, it's designed to try to bring builders into the loop and solve some of their problems so they can actually have clients so we can have a viable industry. But it's also designed to bring the lenders to the table and start looking at this and developing ways that they can, they can start to do it. And we're, you know, we're pretty successful, but we're still a long ways off because the loans that we're able to get people are still personal loans. They're still really high interest rate. RV loans. Yeah, yeah. RV loans or personal loans. And they, the payoffs on those are more like a car loan, like five, yes. five years, right? Yeah, it's, it requires a higher level of credit. It requires a, a larger down payment. It has a higher interest rate and it's for fewer, fewer years. And so what that, just basically means is that in our country, you could get a mortgage for a $200,000 home on foundation right now, and you'd be paying less out of pocket and less uh, monthly, your monthly expenses and your down payment would be less than it would be if you took a, a loan off on $85,000 for tiny. Mm. A lot. Wow. So actually, can you 
I'm not sure that all of our listeners have even heard of Operation Tiny Home. So maybe you can talk talk a bit about that organization and, and what it does. I would love to. Yeah, my uh, I I never talk about it. It's crazy. I've been working for it with it for like you know since 2015, and it really it's it's a nonprofit that is dedicated to assisting people facing extreme housing insecurities. And we've focused for the first many years on veterans. We've expanded to some other communities. We've we've worked with Native American tribe women's shelters were looking at expanding into assisting uh, kids that are aging out of foster care. But the whole premise, the whole concept is it's utilizing the power of community to create a healing environment for people who need healing, right? In the veterans community, isolation is, in my opinion, is as much of a, a cause of the PTSD or the maybe the symptoms that are the result of the, of the trauma. The times when veterans get isolated after those experiences are just as much of a, a, a cause of um, some of the, the real negative manifestations. So that idea of a community of tiny homes, it's not about just giving a person a place to be and a roof over their head. It's about trying to facilitate and design in that access to connection, that access to socialization. It's not forcing it. It's simply just saying, hey, by just giving people access to it, there's a healing that happens. So what we do is we try to facilitate the construction of tiny home villages for homeless veterans, um, one on the reservation, and just really try to promote this whole concept and, and try to discuss the nuances of it, right? Because it is a bit nuanced. And, and I think what it really comes down to me is that we, we very much understand the notion of preventative medicine, right? With like, with, with physical health, like diet and exercise are just really cost-effective ways to later on down the line of life, not have to deal with some really pretty painful issues and, and really expense, you know? I mean, it's really easy to see how it's, healthcare is very expensive. and running and you know eating well eating well can be expensive too but like exercise all these things it's a lot of bang for your buck and a tiny home village when we're talking about people that are really struggling through depression struggling through ptsd anxiety all these things that inhibit people's ability to stand on their own two feet Community and access to community can be an incredibly powerful preventative medicine for mental health. Yeah, I interviewed now a year and a half ago this um, a reverend named Faith Fowler, and she um, she's been doing a, a project in Detroit um, where they they are building these these tiny homes in a village, and they're fully you know fully paid for and then um people are able to live in them and as long as they're able to it, it's at a community center and so they're able to access the community services mental health counseling whatever it is that they need um and then after seven years um they actually get signed over the deed to the house um and she spoke really beautifully about that you know 
just providing housing to people doesn't actually give them a home and that being homeless is more than just being without shelter. It's, you know, it's being without community and love and all these other pieces. Um, and so I think that it sounds like Operation Tiny Home kind of recognizes that same same thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's like really the the heart of our dedication to the cause, you know, is is kind of that idea that like getting somebody in a home is just the beginning. And especially when you're talking about veterans, just so easy to look at the statistics and understand that that's not enough. We need to we need to help them address some other things. Integration, you know, being able to stand on your own two feet, the dignity that comes from from knowing that you're, you know, a functioning, functioning member of society. There's a lot of pride that comes with that. And and that's that's what we want. We want not just people to be, you know, in a home, but actually to be like really moving on a path forward and healing. Um, And what's so beautiful is that we've been able to participate in constructing homes for villages all around the country. And we're kind of, that's what I see myself as, is we're, we're, we're kind of an incubator source for people who are trying to create these villages. Because I can't be everywhere. I can't build all that. But what we can do is bring some assistance, bring some recognition, an injection of energy. Um, so we're kind of an incubator source to try to get people who are trying to do this up and running and get them on their way. And the one thing that I try never to do is try to instill my own idea about what it is that they should do, what their village should look at, look like. Because everywhere I go, people have their own notions. There's a lot of common denominators, but people have different ideas and different angles. And and it's um, it's just so it's just so great. I think that's one of the that's one of the signatories or. It like signals that maybe you're onto something that really has got some some legs is when a huge amount of different people with different motivations are all kind of coming to the same conclusion. And they don't always see the they're not always trying to get to the same place and solve the same things, but they're they're stumbling across the same notion. And what we're looking at is these tiny home villages as a really a much more dignified way that we can assist our homeless population giving people space of their own, giving some people access to socialization, but at the same time, privacy anytime they need it. It's not a, you know, it's not a a lesser built structure. It just happens to be small. And not every village is, is going down the pathway of ownership. Like what you just mentioned, I think that's a beautiful thing. I think logistically it's a lot harder. It's not always uh, possible, I would say logistically that way. But I think that, what we've been doing is working with a huge amount of faith-based organizations, corporations that are putting money into housing. Um, we are getting assistance in a huge amount of ways from the private sector. And I'm, I'm not somebody who believes that the government is there to solve all problems. But when we're just like identifying such major barriers right like sure i don't need your i don't need your money and help me do this but would you please just take down the barriers that stop us from actually trying right the government needs to make laws that are you know that jive with what people want to do and need to do 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a totally different subject, but there's a huge amount of subsidies that go to homeowners that are completely um, withheld from renters, that are withheld from anybody trying to do anything other than like the traditional homeowner process. Sure. And yeah, I'm not going to go into that, but I, I think if we simply took those subsidies and removed them and transferred them into giving people access to the bottom of our society, I mean, that would have an impact beyond a huge amount of other policy initiatives that we could do affecting race, affecting quality, affecting economic quality. You can blame me for it, but I'm an activist, I feel like, on a lot of levels. I'm certainly an environmental activist. I'm certainly, but I, I try to stay in my wheelhouse, you know, like, you know, screw plastic. We have to get away from it. But it's like, I'm a home builder. I know home building. I want to, I want to speak to what I know. And what I believe is that the issue of housing and the discrimination in housing, housing discrimination is an issue that touches into social justice. It touches into so many different aspects, environmentalism, all the way down the line to traffic. I mean, I could tell you why tiny homes can affect our traffic. So, it's an, so yeah, it, it's a thing that's got a lot of impact potentially. And, and it's one of the most actionable things that we can do. There's a lot of ideas that aren't, there's not any like solid ideas for like, okay, what can we change? Is there any policies we can look at that will make a difference? Like, hey, here's a real one, this material that's happening. Right. It's already happening. We just have to allow it to happen and maybe even encourage it. It is so desired that it's happening, even though it's illegal. People are going through this process fully well, knowing that they could get something happen, that the county could find them, that things are. And that's another example. When people are so desperate that they're willing to just break the rules, uh, especially in non, you know, non-harmful ways, the civil disobedient ways, right? That's another indication that there's like, there's a conversation that really needs to happen. And I believe that every like movement requires it requires a, a variety of different types of advocates, I guess, right? Yeah. You know, I don't blame the people rioting right now because the other aspect of it is that the other part hasn't been working, you know? Like Colin Kaepernick bending his knee, that was a you know, as as polite and uh nonviolent of a reaction as possible, it was unacceptable. Right. So what I believe is that every movement needs both sides. It needs people that are willing to just do what they think is right, regardless of the laws. And it needs people who are like really articulate adults articulating to the other adults why it is that we need to kind of consider some change. I never meant to be like the adult trying to articulate why. And I'm like, always was supposed to be like the radical guy with two middle fingers in the air just like living my life and that that didn't happen um and i think a big piece of it was because you know this this platform wasn't something i really asked for it was a a experience that i said hey that would be a wild wild cool thing to try and something i probably would regret if i didn't take it up um but there is hosting the show you mean yeah hosting the show 
you know, hosting Tiny House. I've never, never tried to be a TV guy. But because it is so important to so many people, because there are such, um, there's, there's real issues that kind of surround this, you know, as a, I don't know, out of, out of respect of all the passionate advocates that are out there who dedicate their lives that put so much above their own needs so that they can kind of live in a way that's true to what they're trying to accomplish out of, out of like, as an honor to the people that don't have a platform. The fact that I was thrown in this position really means that it's not even my choice. If I want to like actually honor people who dedicate themselves, it's I have to talk about it. I have to speak up about it. That's, that's beautiful. I'm curious. It's kind of a two-part question. Um, do you have a favorite tiny house that you have toured on the show or potentially not on the show? And do you have a, a project that's in the works either through uh, Operation Tiny House Home or, you know, just something else that you're kind of mo- really excited about that you can share? Sure. Um, man, yeah, I, I'm full of projects. Uh, but I'll tell you about my favorite tiny home. And it was interesting because I feel like the, the it, I don't feel like it got seen for how special it really was. And I have to say that I've seen hundreds of tiny homes. And, and I respect a huge amount of different builders. And I try to look for like the gaps of things that aren't really being done for whatever reason. And typically in construction, when something's not being done, it's because there's like a liability there. <laughs> so I'm pretty good at like being like, uh, oh, is there a risk to be taken? Perfect. Sign me up, you know. Um, but I built one. I built a home that I've been wanting to build for a long, long time. And I had to buy a hydraulic lift system. And basically what I did was I had the bedroom loft on a hydraulic lift system that lifts six feet, right? So the whole shell, you've probably seen some tiny homes. Uh, there's like an Alaska, like I think they're called the Alaska camper or something, that is a complete sleeve over, right? So it's a lift system where the roof lifts and it keeps the water from getting inside because it sleeves over. Okay. And this, were you building this one at um, the Georgia Tiny House Fest in 2017? Yes. Okay. Were you there? I was, yeah, I was there. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and that was the only way that I got to do it was because it wasn't for a person. It wasn't a client. Too risky for that. Uh, it was the AT&T had like sponsored us to build a home and they put no stipulations on like what the home was going to be. It was completely up to us. And so Gabrielle, our executive director, said, that here's your chance. You know, like you don't have unlimited money, but like what home would you do? And I'm like, oh, perfect. So I built I built the hydraulic lift system. And I think, you know, there's an element within the the tiny home movement that, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, uh, I don't subscribe to necessarily, which is that it really is just all about living in the smallest space possible. And I'm totally stoked on anybody. I mean, the tiny, tiny home that I lived in for about three years was 114 square feet and no bathroom. You know, before that, I had a van. 
I know about like the small space and I know that it's not about just living in the smallest space possible, right? It really is. um, It's about getting our society to start reevaluating what we need for happiness. Um, And I'm really, it's, it's, I'm, I'm just as passionate about people not living in teeny homes, but living in small ish homes. And what I believe is that when you took a tiny home, you have a certain amount of people that walk in and they say, oh, I could do it or I couldn't do it. And for a lot of people, the reason that they couldn't do it is the law, is the law of sleeping. And, and me, as somebody who lived in the tiny home and it had a very small law, I will say it was the one part of the home that I just never really could kind of be like, oh, that's not a sacrifice. You know? Uh, so to build the... To build the home with the hydraulic lift system in the in the bedroom did three things for me. What it did was I was able to elevate the level of the loft. So underneath the loft, in the bathroom, in the other spaces, you're no longer cramped in your shower, right? You have a headroom. It was almost seven foot. So it was almost seven foot headroom in the, in the bathroom, which felt very, very good. And then... I was able to have full headroom in the bedroom, which doesn't just rhyme. It's also way cool. (laughs) Full full headroom in the bedroom. bedroom. (laughs) Yeah. Who doesn't want headroom in the bedroom? Don't look into that too hard. I don't know why I just did that. But anyways, um, what it, the third thing that it did was it enabled you to have a walkout rooftop balcony, right? So you've got this beautiful little bedroom. That's got these nice sized ceilings, you know, that's comfortable to wake up into, relaxed. You can get dressed, you can grab your coffee, you can walk out just straight up onto your little rooftop deck. And it kind of really changed the home from being like this single story thing with a loft and like, you know, an awesome, awesome thing, but like definitely sacrificed to this home that I really felt was like had very, very little sacrifice. And what I believe is if you can create a space like that, you're going to have X amount more people thinking I could do it. So I didn't build that home and I don't think it's special because it was like the cutest little tiny house or anything like that. I, I liked it because of what I believed it could do to more people being able to feel like they could live there. And how to me, that's the goal is to see how many people in this world can we get to reflect on what it is that they need and why it is that they desire to have these big things. That's yeah, it's it's about a, a full mentality shift, not just tiny. Yeah, where is that home? Is it lived in? Where where is it now? Uh, that home actually ended up. We were building it for our um, to be our mobile office. Okay. So we built that one to be our mobile office and Gabrielle is a little, I was telling her it was going to be big, but by the time that we got done with the home, it was a big place. Like you saw it, like it was, so it was not the right home for us to be towing from place to place to be a mobile office. It, it was much better as an actual home. You know, most of these homes, especially if it's got a pop-up, you know, that's ideal for a home. that's not going to be going, every, you know, not going to be traveling every day. But so anyways, we got a different office and then that home got given to somebody who lost their home in the Paradise Fire. Okay. So I think it's down there. 
I'm pretty sure it's down there. It went, yeah, it was in uh, it was in Portland, getting finished for a minute, and then and then it yeah got given down there. Nice. So. And then, um, is there a project that you're working on right now that you're excited about that you can share? The Zach Rabbit. Yeah, yeah. Tell <laughs> tell. Well, sure. Well, people are like, "Oh, Zach, where's your company? Can I do?" And what they don't quite realize is like, okay, the tiny home show was super intense, right? The schedule we were producing like 26 episodes a season a year. So it was like 11 months on the road. The ability for me and John to actually have a real time creative business building tiny homes simply was not realistic. Um, and the other piece is that I'm really invested in this tool that I've been working on with my father. Uh, which is an amazing invention. And it's just absolutely the world's best countersink, which is a tool that is used for putting in wood screws. And, you know, wood screws, really, it's like probably the most used thing that a drill does. You know, people buy drills. The biggest thing that a drill does is put in a wood screw. A drill is the most owned tool. There is. So to give you an idea of like how much effect this product, if you save somebody a couple minutes on every time they're putting on wood screws, but you do it for people all around the world and there's millions of us, it has a real effect. So I'm, uh, yeah, if you're interested in it, zagrabbit.com, you can get the world's best countersink. It really is, you know, assembled right here. You know, it's 100% made in America. And uh, it's something that I feel very, you know, it's it's a it's a part of my legacy. I'm from a family of tool builders, so this is kind of what we do. Cool. Yeah, it's I've I've checked it out. I have yet to get my hands on one, but I'm excited. And for whatever my next building project is, they're exclusive. They're exclusive. Yeah. So you, you can only order them directly from Zach Rabbit. Yes. Okay. Yeah, only order direct from Zach Rabbit and. You know, I could talk a lot about what that is, but it's a challenge. You know, when we have, you know, when I think a lot of times tiny homes, we're we're talking a lot about like things that are kind of standing in the way of people being able to just live the American dream. I see as somebody who has really been involved in trying to bring a good concept and invention that's got a a durable design. What I see is that we've we have a situation in our country where we've consolidated so much of the retail option. And what I mean by, especially in hardware, there's no mom and pop hardware stores. There's Home Depot, there's Lowe's, there's Ace Hardware, True Value. And Ace Hardware, they used to be mom and pop guys that they had to band together to try to like form a corporation that was big enough to take on Lowe's and Home Depot, right? So what that does is means that if you're an inventor, you can get an amazing tool. It's the best in the world. You got super patent protection. But if you're not in Home Depot, it really doesn't matter. You're kind of not there, right? And Home Depot is such a, you know, it's such a cool boys club. And if you don't already work for Milwaukee or you don't already work for one of these other companies, then you can't actually play in that club, right? And then the flip side of that is if you're like me and you want to manufacture in the United States, uh, I'm actually having veterans from one of the villages that I help get going 
assemble the Zach Rabbit. So all the assembly is being done in Kansas City by veterans who are living in one of the tiny home villages that I helped get going. It's kind of like that way of providing that next kind of piece to get these guys back on self, self-reliance is that job. But here's the thing. If I want to get my prices to a point where I can even talk to Home Depot, I got to I got to put in millions of dollars or like hundreds of thousands of dollars invest into building this tool at high enough quantity that I can get my prices down to a point that they're going to talk to me. In order to do that in America without owning a home that I could leverage myself, I'm required to go and talk to the financial class about, hey, I got this great business opportunity. I'm, And what they want you to do is put together this really big business proposal that has all these details and shows exactly how you're running your business at the lowest cost possible way. And the first thing that any investor that comes to talk to me about Rabbit wants to say is, why aren't you making this in China? Right? So... That whole concept about American made, which really does have relevance right now, the piece that people are missing about that conversation is the influence that the financial class has on the decisions of the business owners. Because if the only way I can play the game is to go and ask for the permission from the financial class, and the only way that they're going to give me that permission is if I show that I'm manufacturing the cheapest most exploitive way possible, then the decision is not one of like, hey, do I want America? I do I want to make make this in America? The decision is one between do I want my tool to succeed and have an opportunity or do I want it to fail? That's I like to yell about things and that's definitely what I'm no, yelling about lately. That is really frustrating. And it's it's like in there are some places where, you know, the internet and the where we've ended up has made it so much easier for somebody to start something like this podcast, for example, like I'm sitting in a bedroom here recording this show that I can publish to anyone, you know, I didn't have to get anyone's permission to do it. But in order to play in that manufacturing space and actually sell a thing, you you definitely do still have those gatekeepers and you, you know, it needs to be cheap enough to work at scale for anyone to even consider it. Yeah. But as you point out, the internet is changing the game in a big way. I mean, and that's why I am in business. I'm selling them, but I'm just selling them straight from my own website. I could go down the Amazon route and I just don't really care about that so much. Kind of feel like, Hey, a good tool will get the awareness will spread. People will figure it out. They'll come to our website. And the difference is, is if I sell direct from my website, what it means is that it doesn't mean that I have to go down this crazy path of ordering such high quantity that I go so in debt that I'm beholden to the other people that hold the first string, right? I can do it on my accord. I can fund fund it out of my own pocket, barely. Um, (laughs) But it means that the decisions are mine. And if I want to employ veterans that are going through a hard time in a, you know, a tiny home village in Kansas City, well, I get to do that. And because I'm actually um, making a higher percentage of, of you know, the, um, the take, I don't have to nickel and dime my supplier. And I don't have to turn this manufacturing assembly facility in Kansas City into a sweatshop, right? So that's the, that's the difference. 
difference. That's the difference. People don't realize that the ability of business owners to conduct business in a conscious capacity is not necessarily their choice to make. When we allow our society to create retail avenues that are so dominated by one or two players. And what I think is that actually it challenges our ability as Americans to be creators. And that's a dangerous thing because if we got anything that we should be proud of as Americans, it's the track record of invention that we brought to the world. And it's been a cornerstone of our country's um, uh, affluence and privilege, you know, and we don't want to lose it. Yeah. Well, Zach, you've been incredibly generous with your time. This has been such a fun and wide-ranging interview. Um, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three books or resources that you that have helped f- shape your worldview or have inspired you that you'd like to share uh, with, with our listeners? Okay. Um, I think everybody, if you haven't read Jay Schaefer's first tiny home book, you know, that's the one I would start with. I mean, he's an incredible person. He's, he's a, he inspired me on so many levels about not just what this movement could be about and the actual value that it could have for society, but just on how he himself presented it, right? And the the way that he was, I mean, for lack of better expl- explanation, he was a he was a very clean cut, articulate, educated person who was bringing forth some pretty radical concepts. And those radical concepts would have only been looked at as radical if he was if he was more easily pigeonholed as as a radical, which as I know him now, I know he's <laughs> he is as radical as they come, man. This guy is amazing. But um you know that that's a big piece. Go check out Jay Schaefer's book. Uh to to learn more about the things that I talk about that that guide my passion. You know, number one, I, I talked about the um the Opportunity Atlas. It's basically, it, it's all kind of stemming from research that was done by a guy named Raj Chetty. He's got a book out that you can read that really goes into it. You know, there's the other, the other thing that I kind of quoted was something that's a report called The Coming Exodus of Older Homeowners by Fannie Mae and the USC, USC professor. And then the other one is something that's been put out by the AARP, which is really, it's called Making Room. And it's a report that really just has an amazing amount of just very easy to understand graphics that talk about the demographic shifts that have been happening in our country over the last 40 or 40 years or so. And it really guides my belief on how tiny homes, it's not just like a low income option that we need. We have 50% of our country is single adults, right? So when we're talking about the housing crunch, we need options that are more appropriate for the needs of the population. And because of the demographic shifts, that basically means single homes. And when I say, hey, this, this tiny homes and backyards can really help, I'm not talking about taking all low-income families and putting them in tiny homes. I want people to imagine a property owner that lives in a big home that 
realizes they don't need that. Moving into a tiny home, now you've just vacated a large home with many bedrooms, right? And the more that we have single people occupying large homes with plenty of bedrooms, the bigger of an issue we're going to have. The more that we can get single people who live by themselves into smaller places that are more appropriate, the more that the home stock that we already have can become available to the families that need it. And so there's this great report from the AARP making room that really just lays out like how drastic the demographic shifts are. Awesome. Well, Zach Giffen, thank you so, so much. This was a really great conversation and and I just appreciate it so much. Well, thanks for giving me the time. Nobody ever gives me the time to get into it. Hey, we can do it again. As long, you know, as long as people don't, yeah, as long as people keep listening, we'll just keep doing it. Um, so yeah, awesome. I'm determined to keep talking about it until it's like, you know, until people start getting it. Yeah. Yeah. But I appreciate what you do and, and spreading the word and helping to get this movement, um, understood by more and more people. Thank you so much to Zach Giffen for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Zach's work and photos of some of his tiny house builds and other products at thetinyhouse.net slash 123. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 123. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.